Um, where there's a will, there's a way, right? Um, so if you're just joining us, there's been a, a progression to the, uh, to the way we've been moving uh, over this weekend. And we started off Friday night talking about identity, about who we are. And then yesterday we talked about authority and community. And then this morning we want to focus on the concept of destiny. Where are we going from here? And those, the progression of that follows sort of four big themes in the questions that humanity has asked. And different people have phrased them in different ways. My boss, Ravi Zacharias, often puts them in these categories. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Where, do, where are we from? Uh, how do we behave? How do we relate to each other? What's the purpose of life is part of that. And then destiny. Where are we going? And so in this uh, talk this morning, I want to focus uh, just for a few minutes here on destiny. What comes next? Now, I've also, at the same time, um, throughout the last several months, been wrestling in my mind with a couple big questions. And when we think about destiny, people automatically jump to a concept of heaven, of the new heavens and the new earth, and the gloriousness of the restoration and the fullness, and Jesus saying, behold, I make all things new. And we're like, oh yeah, that's going to be awesome. Can't wait for that. Good. All right? That's part of it. Then there's the, the, the focus of destiny on the intensification of our relationship with God, that he will come and make his dwelling with us. And we're going, oh, that's going to be awesome too. We get excited about that. But as I've been reading and thinking through the New Testament, there's another element of that future um, destiny that we're moving toward that I want to talk about this morning. And part of that comes from the fact, have you ever been on a, like a vacation or traveling to a vacation and you run into people and usually it's a husband and wife and they're like fighting in the airport and the, you, they have their Hawaiian garb on and you're like, boy, I bet you guys are going to have a great time on this trip. You know, <laughs> like you're in a nice place, but you're really ticked off at each other. I don't know what travel does Watch that when you guys take off here. Um, so you can, be, you can be in a nice spot, in a nice situation, but internally be in angst. And so a good place is not enough. What about the peace within when we're in that good place? And so I want to think a little bit about not just the place of where we're going, destiny, not just the intensification of the relationship of where we're going, destiny, but the internal state of the satisfaction of being in that place, particularly as it relates to the concept of justice. And this comes around because I started second-guessing somewhere back around Christmas. My church sings, sings a lot of songs that have the word hallelujah in it. I don't know. You guys remind me of some hallelujah people around here. Um, and then I started reading in the New Testament the way that the word hallelujah is actually used. And I started thinking, am I using the word hallelujah correctly? It only shows up four times in Revelation 19, and it's in a context like this. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants, and again they shouted hallelujah. Is that how your Christmas songs go? <laughs> no. What's up with that? Three out of those four references to hallelujah in the New Testament are about God's justice. And in the Old Testament, it shows up 21 times in the, in the latter part of the Psalms, and all of them are like, boy, Lord, we were in a bad spot, and our enemies were about to whoop up on us, and then you came and whooped up on them. Hallelujah. That's the West Virginia translation, that <laughs> about to whoop up on us. <laughs> Let's pick up in Matthew chapter 12 this morning and think about why the, the, the disciples and those who are following Jesus started to get excited about what was going to happen. And so previously coming up to this, Jesus has been having a little confrontation with the Pharisees. He's doing great things like teaching and healing people. And then, of course, they're like, hmm, he's teaching and healing people. Everybody thinks he's a great guy. Let's kill him, which is the logical progression there. Um, and so... So when we, when we get into this, um, I think we might have 
the wrong passage there with the wrong verses. So let me just read this to you. Um, That's the right title, but I don't think those are the verses. So let me read this to you. Jesus, aware of this, so he knows they want to kill him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit on him. And he will, what will he do? And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Other translations there say to the nations. 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will put their hope. And we run into the first reference to hope in the New Testament in response to Jesus in proclaiming justice. So aware of this, Jesus withdraws. And it's not that he couldn't handle the Pharisees, it's just that he had bigger fish to fry. You know, he has a bigger war to be waging and doesn't get caught up in the battles with the Pharisees. And for me, that's a very important life lesson there is choose your battles wisely. Uh, It's not that he was incapable of that, it's just that he had a bigger picture of what was going on. And so in that situation, he did deal with conflict by withdrawing because he was on a bigger mission. So that's the withdrawing part there. And then in the latter part of 15 and 16, we see Jesus doing typical Jesus stuff. And they followed him, and he healed them, and he ordered them not to tell who he was. And so Jesus is on kind of his uh, secret mission at this point of doing great things, healing, following. And if we just picked up and read, we'd say, yeah, especially finishing up a series on Mark. You see Jesus doing this all over the place. We'd say, yep, that's kind of his life motto. He heals them, he's teaching, they follow him, and he's doing it not in a, in a flamboyant public way. Uh, orders them not to make himself known. The question that I had when I read this was in verse 17, it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. What, what, what is the this? What is the thing that he was doing that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet? Was it referring to the many following him, to the healing, to the silence, to the link between healing and justice, to his identity? What's going on here? What is the this? And I think it's, it's fascinating, this actually parallels nicely with where we've been because it starts out with, what, a statement about Jesus' identity. It matters who we are, where we're starting from, right? And so right from the beginning uh, of this passage, it says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. So there's an identity of Jesus as a servant of God. It's under the authority of God, and by the conferring of the Spirit upon him, he's joining into the divine community of what God wants to do. And so there's this identity, authority, and community element to what Jesus is doing. And then there's this sending, and the what is he going to do? He's going to go, and he's going to proclaim justice. Now, do we have a need for justice in our time now? Right answer. Who said yes? Somebody said it. Um, do, we, do we live in a just world? When was the last time that you flipped on the news and your immediate response was, oh, that's just? <laughs> Have you ever had that experience? Isn't it tragic that that's funny? And yet justice is something we are so deeply craving, is it not? And it's good that we should, but we just don't see it happen that much. There's blurriness to our justice system. And part of that is, is a realization that um, people get away with stuff. It just happens. Um, 
from the extreme cases of, of violence and abuse and predators and all kinds. It just, they don't all get caught in our justice system. There's that element of it, and it's, and it's tragic. Then there's the other side of that of, of how do we, our, our math and justice is a little bit weird uh, in the sense that, so, um, so let's say Will kills me. What, what does he get in New York? What's the going rate for murder? I don't know, 20 years, whatever. Um, I said that in Texas recently, and somebody's like, hang him. You know, like, oh. <laughs> Glad to see we're just doing 20 years here in New York. Um, so, but let's think about that for a second. How does that math work out? Is, is 20 years of Will's life in prison worth my life? You see, you see what I'm saying? So we have a, a justice system, but it doesn't necessarily map neatly onto... Um, our lives. And the problem with this is, is that in Will killing me, he's, he's not just crossing a social boundary, he's, he's desecrating a boundary that God has provided by establishing human life as sacred. And so the trouble that we have with justice is, how do we provide justice on earth for the infringement of something that's divinely declared to be sacred? It's God's rule. If we break it, how as humans do we punish for that? And we can do that in a certain extent to create order, but we can't. It's a divine problem here. God has to be the one who's going to do that if this is going to work out and it be fully just. And so we live in the, in the sense of this tension. I think we all sense this of like, yeah, we can do the best we can, but it's not going to work out. Um, and it's one thing to think about, oh, out there in the world and on the news and, you know, the suicide bomber blew himself up. Actually, a couple of them in churches in Indonesia this morning, our brothers and sisters around the world worshiping, died while doing what we're doing. Uh, the, with a suicide bomber, the guy's dead. Like, how does justice work for that? And he killed how many people? You know, come on, God. What gives? Where is it? And it's easy to think out there, but then start pushing that back into your own lives. I guarantee you, sitting in this room, you've done messed up things to other people, and other people have done messed up things to you. Yes. We can all raise our hands to that, and we live in a broken world. Now, Oftentimes when I go to speak at college campuses, everybody's all hyped up about justice. Everybody wants it, they struggle to define it, but they want it. Um, and so sometimes I just write on the board, I go up to the front and say, hey, help me with this. And I write this statement, all ideals are utopian and illusionary. And I just put it as a line on the board, all ideals are utopian and illusionary. Second line, justice is an ideal. Therefore, justice is illusionary and utopian. And then I say, help me break that apart. What are we talking about when we talk about justice? Is it not just an illusion? And it generates some very fascinating conversations. I got that little syllogism from a guy named Steve Garber. But it's a great way to start a conversation on justice. And as a Christian, we can jump on that and say, no, justice is not an illusion. What is this that Jesus is talking about or Matthew is writing about here when he says that until he leads justice to victory? Because if we live in this system where justice doesn't actually happen, it leads to a lot of hopelessness, and it leads to a lot of anger, and it leads to a lot of people doing really stupid stuff to try to make justice happen on their own, which creates more problems. And so we live with hopelessness and anger and frustration in our culture, and it, it comes quick, right? And we have, this, we have a desire for justice that God has planted in us as people made in his image, and we have to figure out how to deal with that. So when we see something unjust, quick, to the streets, Campaign on social media, right? Um, go for it. And is that bringing about justice? And I'm not, uh, <laughs> to quote the comedian Mitch Hedberg, which I wouldn't quote on much else, he once said, uh, I'm against protesting, I just don't know how to show it. Um, 
But, uh, but this idea of how we have this visceral, emotional response to injustice, and we do the best we can, but Jesus does that differently. Does he not from this passage? He's not a self-promoter. God says, behold, I will do this thing, and I'll put my spirit on him, and he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. goes on, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he won't snuff out or he won't quench. How vulnerable is a bruised reed? Fragile. A smoldering wick, your birthday candle, whatever, look at that little ember glowing on there. It's almost lost it. And God is saying, in the restoration of justice... Jesus cares about the fragile and the frail just down to those of us whose lives are thin bare. We're just right there at the end of it. Have you noticed that in most superhero movies, they destroy half of the world in saving it? I mean, think about your modern comic movies. How many times, movies, how many times has New York City and London been destroyed um, in a Marvel or a DC comic movie? You know? um, and Jesus doesn't do that. A, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick. And so there's this subtle, silent, gentle, silent strength for the fragile and the frail that Jesus brings about for those of us that really feel that we are just hanging on by a thread. Those are the people that Jesus cares about, and he does it in this gentle way. So Jesus chooses his battles wisely. He's secure in his identity and who he is. The Spirit of God is on him. He's not a protester, uh, and he's not advertising, hey, this is what I'm going to do. He talks about what he has already done. And so what does this look like for him to say, well, he's, he's quiet until he leads victory to justice? What does that look like? And is that because of a frailty on Jesus' part that he is so gentle and kind? Uh, no. Gentleness is simply power under control. He's got it. He can do it. But he humbles and accommodates himself to us to pick us up where we are in the fragility of our lives because he loves us. God has a plan, and he's calling, and he's using Jesus in this. Um, I can't help but, but pass this up, and if you're somebody who enjoys uh, literature and just think about this some other time, I'll just point this out, and you can follow up on it. But there's actually a kind of a chiastic structure that happens here on this um, beginning where it says, and many followed him, and he healed, and he did not make himself known. So you have the, a lot of people, you have the, the healing, and then you have the not making him known. And then here is my servant. His identity is given back. The bruised reed he will not break until, and the nations will put his hope in him. So it goes from the many to the many, the healing to the broken, the silence to the identity is in there. It's just good literature. I mean, even if you didn't believe it was divine, it's, it's fun the way that um, the author puts that together for us as a fascinating way just kind of compact that in that. So the answer to the question is, he did this to fulfill what was spoken in the prophet Isaiah. Yeah, all of it is about that. All of what he is doing is fulfilling what God has planned from time past to make this happen. And the reason that Jesus does not come as a protester is because he comes back as a conqueror. And there's an important difference here between being a protester and a conqueror. When you're a protester, you're appealing to a power and an authority outside of yourself. You're appealing to the power and authority of the moral conscience maybe of a majority somewhere else. And when Jesus returns, he's not appealing to another power or another authority to sort things out. It's in his own name we sang about that the knees will bow and tongues confess, right? And so he's not pushing outside himself. He's... Uh, he's, he's, he's doing this on his own. He's got this 
uh, together. And this is not, don't please hear me say this, this is not a critique of social justice. We should be deeply concerned about that, but let's not get so hung up on social justice that we miss out on the category of divine justice. We can only do so much socially, and as children made in the image of God and being part of what God has for our world, yes, we should be involved in these things, but just don't miss out on the bigger part of it. Let's not get hung up just on that. And it's important then that we think back to what it means to be a human and this idea of how do we balance out justice in our time. It's been wisely said before, of course, that justice delayed is not justice denied, that justice will happen even if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, even if it doesn't happen immediately. And I've wrestled for a long time about this relationship between justice and time, and it struck me a couple weeks ago, you know what? The delay of justice is necessary for the reality of forgiveness, The delay of justice is necessary for the reality of forgiveness. If God killed me every time I sinned, I would not have, we wouldn't, none of us would have made it to church this morning. Um, There's a necessary delay to the justice of God in order for there to be the reality of the forgiveness. This comes almost straight out of 2 Peter 3. He says, God is not slow in keeping his promises as you understand, but he's waiting for all to come to repentance. And so there's a delay of justice for the possibility of us being back on the right side, back in right relationship with God when he comes to squash the rebellion against him. And the question that we then have to ask ourselves is when he returns, where do we find ourselves? Aligned with the army of Christ or with the rebel army? Which side are we on? And because justice has been delayed so that forgiveness is a reality, that makes repentance a possibility for us to come back into conformity with the plan that God has for us. Sometimes when I hear stuff about heaven, and it's, and it's great, it's, uh, uh, but it sounds a little bit too overly precious moments for me. Um, you know what I'm talking about, the little porcelain angels and wings and all that kind of, yeah, cute, right? Again, it's kind of like the hallelujah thing. Is that really the imagery we get? Here's one. This is, so this is the chapter of the hallelujahs. Um, so after the first three hallelujahs, you have this. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, precious moment, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen and white and clean. And out of his mouth came a sharp sword with which he did strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter, and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Whoo, you want epic? All right. A just God and justice and the satisfaction of justice being part of the reason that the angelic host and we will one day proclaim hallelujah, praise the Lord in the presence of God is for his ability to sort these things out. That justice will happen is part of our destiny. Now there's an interesting part of this is oftentimes we have problems with people saying, oh, I can't believe in a God that would punish. Um, You know, that's actually a fairly privileged position to speak that from. Because if you talk to somebody who's been abused or has had something happen in their life, oftentimes they will say, I can't believe in a God that would forgive that person. And so it's one of the fundamental challenges of our time and of our world is how, in all worldviews and all religions have to sort this out, how do you properly balance justice and mercy at the same time? It seems like if you prioritize justice that you miss out on mercy and forgiveness and repentance. And on the other hand, it seems like if you prioritize and elevate mercy, you miss out on the justice and the fairness of life. 
And it was the theologian and pastor John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, that beautifully pointed this out. He said, in all the systems of the world, these are opposed to each other. And Will's nodding because he knows where this is going, and you might too. But he's saying, only in the cross of Christ do we see these things happen, not in opposition to each other, but through each other. In the sense that God's justice is displayed through his mercy. And in his mercy, his justice is displayed by being willing to take on the punishment for the goofiness of the brokenness of the sinfulness of the world in which we lived in. I think my dad was praying recently in, about our country, and he called, referred to it as a time of um, silliness, unrest, and sin. Um, you know, he's like, oh yeah, that pretty much gets it. Um, God takes that. The wages of sin is death upon himself, so there is justice for that, but it's the upon himself part that is the declaration of his mercy. And so only in Christianity do you find those two elements coming together in this way. And it's a good question to ask people when you're talking to them about what they believe about the world is, how, do, how is the way that you see the world? How do you balance mercy and justice? It's almost a system of, do you import or export mercy and justice from the way that you view the world? And in some ways, it's not to say that we aren't interested in it as Christians, but we do uh, call in the Air Force as far as justice goes. We point up and say, hey, this is bigger than me. This burden is not entirely upon mine. And that's why it's so important that we pick up these little passages all throughout the New Testament. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I've got this. And actually, it's a, an interesting place to live. And I remember, you know, so growing up with brothers, it's always like, oh, they hit me, so I should hit them twice, you know, and that kind of thing, you know. Um, and to have a parent intervene there and say, look, no, I know that what he did to you is wrong, but that doesn't give you the right to do this back to him. I'm the authority here. Actually, while I was working on this message, I heard my kids yelling down the hallway. And ah, saw Thaddeus bit me. You know, why did he bite you? Because he pushed me off the couch, you know. And it's going on. And um, I heard my wife take one of our sons and stand him in the corner. And she say, look, we all know that Thaddeus can be a bother. That does not give you the right to hurt him. I'll be the one who takes care of the punishment. You know, I can do this proportionally. I can do this with a clear mind and a calm head. Um, and to live in a place as humans like that, of saying, yes, we want the right thing to happen, but ultimately it doesn't depend on me. I don't bear the burden of making sure that this happens. I don't have to strap on my sword and go out and sort out the world. I can afford to be gracious. I can afford to be merciful. I can afford to be forgiving. A, because that's what God asked of me, and because he will do it, and he will make it happen. He is able to fix these things that we deeply ache for, that we want to be right, that we intuitively most often know is wrong. And so we're not saying here that we aren't now deeply concerned about what's just and fair. It's a huge part of Christian practice and belief from the beginning. God is interested in these things, but it's important for us to know that it really will happen, that justice really will happen. And the reason that it's important is it gives us a great sense of security now, but it also gives us a phenomenal sense of hope. And let me point this out to you in this way. I've noticed this, that comfort in the absence of hope is merely a distraction. The best we can do, uh, my colleague Vince Vitale often points out he saw an Xbox commercial where the baby is born and then launches through time and dies. And at the end it just says, life is short, play more Xbox. Um, you know... That's the summary of our lives. We're sleepwalking through reality. You get to the other end. That's what life is about. So since we already picked on Will for killing me, 
Let's do it this way. Sing. Yeah. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Uh, divine justice. So, so it doesn't say Will shoots me this time, but it, you know, it, it hits me in the femoral artery. How long do I have to live? You know, not long. Um, we have some doctors in the house. They can help. But um, what's the best you can do for me there? Oh, it's going to be fine. No, it's not. I'm going to die. Uh, the best you could possibly do is remind me of good things of my life, of say a prayer for me, and try to distract me from the pain until it's all over. Comfort in the absence of any real hope. Our best bet is distraction. And that's actually how most of the world deals with pain, is we distract ourselves from it. We try to find a way to anesthetize ourselves to it. Um, forget it. Distract it. Hey, look over here. We'll entertain. We'll amuse, not think about it. Comfort in the absence of hope is merely a distraction. However, if, let's say you just broke my femur. Uh, I could, that would hurt a lot, and somebody say, hey, we have some good doctors, surgeons in this town. We'll have you over the hospital. We'll get you some good medication and a good surgeon, and in three hours, uh, we'll, have you, we'll have you stable. Does my leg still hurt? You bet it does. Is my psychological and emotional state different, though? Yes, because I know what the outcome is going to be. I have a certainty of the things that are yet to come, and it gives me a peace even in the presence of my pain. And so comfort in the absence of hope is merely a distraction, but when we have the certainty of hope, it gives us a peace even in the midst of our pain. And that is what having a clear concept of the destiny to which we're going, we know how this is going to turn out. Does that take away the pain that we're living in now? No. But does it give us a stability in the midst of our pain now? Yes. A peace in the midst, in the presence of our pain is the way in which Jesus engaged this world. Didn't just pop us out of it. He stepped into it, rolled up his sleeves and said, hey, you want to talk about suffering? I can do this too. Uh, does that not make a difference in the way that we view reality in the long-term perspective of what it means to be human and to be living here? Uh, so it's a, a genuine hope that flows out of the certainty about what God will do in the future. Will we say to the justice of God, hallelujah, you got it right. When we think about our world, when we think about God's ability to restore and to make compensation for and to renew and to redeem and to relate, and we look forward to that new place and that new intensification of relationship and the justice and the mercy being balanced perfectly, and suddenly we'll find ourselves at a great place and a great state of mind where we can really worship and say, wow, God, you're good because you did things that are way out of our capabilities. That's beyond what we could do, and you did it. Praise to you. The question, that's the easy part. The question for me, though, is in the intensification of the presence of God, will I be able to handle that? When God comes back to provide justice, am I on the hallelujah side or the oh shoot side of that line? Where do you stand before God? The delay of justice is necessary for the reality of forgiveness and repentance, and it may be that most of us here are living graciously in that time of needing to repent to get back on the right side of things. How do we do that? Can't bootstrap ourselves there. God's going to have to be the one who does it. God will have to be the one who does it. And that is the joy that just oozes out of the New Testament of God is the one who will do it, who does love us, who will make a means for us, who will make a path for us, who
who will declare us righteous because of Jesus' faithfulness to what God asked him to do on our behalf. Justice will happen. Mercy is expressed. We get to live a life in the, in the delight of that. And so this isn't a, a pie-in-the-sky punt to the future, the fulfillment of all things and destiny, and ooh, wonderful when we get there. It's, yes, okay, that's going to be great, but that means something for me now, this morning. What am I going to do with that? It's what I've referred to earlier as the problem of perfection. How does that which is perfect come in the presence of that which is imperfect and still maintain its definition of perfection? And most religions of the world say, hey, you just you know, follow this path, do these five pillars, whatever, and you finally work your way up to the point where God looks over and says, hey, Rittenhouse, great beard, you're perfect, come on over. Um, and as Christians, we just laugh at that. That's ridiculous to think that a holy, all-knowing, omniscient, omnibenevolent God would look at us and be like, oh, yeah, you're pretty good. No. In order for that to happen, that which is perfect has to do something to that which is imperfect in order to perfect it for that relationship to be possible. And so on the day of judgment, I want to be found in him, as we talked about. I'm on that side. The blood of the lamb on the doorpost. It's what we celebrate in communion, right? I'm in him. I'm with him. When Jesus shows up in the Revelation 19 version of this, I'm with him. I definitely want to be on that side of things. Pick me. I'm with him. Do you see what I'm saying? But God won't force us to do that. And so the invitation this morning as we come into land here and think about the conclusion of God's justice on earth is twofold. Maybe it's just a, a gentle, subtle reminder for you of where we're going and your heart needs to cry in response to that beauty. Hallelujah. It's going to happen. I've seen messed up things in my life and to know that God will sort this out. Oh, whew, breath of fresh air. Hallelujah. And it may be the other way too. If you're saying, I need to get right with God. And if that's you, don't leave the building. Come talk to somebody. We'd love to pray with you and walk you through what it means to start to grow in the direction of being obedient to Christ and making that claim true for yourselves. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. He's after all of us. He demands something for all of us. So we, none of us can sit here this morning and feel justified. And like, oh, glad this sermon doesn't apply to me. Uh, I'm preaching to myself here. Hopefully it's helpful for you. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that justice will happen. May we find ourselves in that position in that time where we can cry out hallelujah for the way in which you've taken the heartache and the brokenness and the tears and the weeping and the sorrow and the blood and the abuse and the, oh, the just chaos of our lives and sort it out and from the beginning you've specialized in making order out of chaos and so we ask lord that as we have a vision for your renewal of all things that you would enliven that reality in our hearts now that it would have a practical application for our souls this morning that we would sit here refreshed in your presence if that is what you have for us but we also know that it's the role of your spirit to convict us and so if we're sitting here this morning, Lord, and we're out of line with the justice and the harmony and the beauty of which you created this world, would you prick our consciousness and, and put us uh, on our knees in a way that we would cry out to you and say, Lord, help. And we're grateful that you always respond to that. If anyone turns to him, I will no way cast him out. Uh, 
And so we put ourselves before you, Lord, in this moment, asking for the fullness of your presence and of your spirit to work in us in the way that you need to. We surrender to your, to your authority in this community because our identity is made for that. And we know where we're from and we know where we're going and that's a beautiful way to live life. And so would you deepen within us the stability and the hope and the joy that come from knowing you. And may we truly live lives in such a way as a result of this knowledge that when people look at us, they're impressed with you. It's for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.